Well, good evening, Calvary Chapel. So tonight, instead of uh, continuing our verse by verse, it's going to be another topical. And the title actually comes from a, a book or a, a story. Uh, it's kind of written like a play. It's called Canticle for Leboitz. Leboitz. Um, I have never read it. I can't recommend it. It might be a horrible story. I don't know. All I know about that is this quote, because I was looking for this quote all over the internet. Oh, and if anybody needs a Bible, Steve would be glad to bring one to you. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Steve. I got to get in the habit of that. All right. Anyway, I was trying to find it. I was familiar with the quote. I was trying to find it. And I, I, you're all sitting down, so I'm going to go ahead and say this. I, I wish there was an easier way to break it to you, but you can't believe everything on the Internet. I, I know that hurts. <laughs> I know that might be news for some. No, I doubt it. Um, but it's all over the Internet. This was actually said by C.S. Lewis, and it actually wasn't. It's in this uh, canticle for Leibowitz. And it's a conversation between a couple of guys, and one of whom says, If I had a soul, I might agree with you. And the other person responded, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Temporarily. (laughs) Of course, that will get resurrected at at the end. Um, And so this lesson was actually born out of us. I was doing uh, teaching through the the book of Genesis. We came to uh, chapter 35 and the death of Rachel, and we'll, we'll look at that here in a little bit. And um, I want to look at some things that may not be entirely clear in our English translations. You know, you, I think probably most all of you know that uh, when it comes to the word for love, there's different Greek words for love, but in English we, they all just get translated love. And so unless you look it up, you know, on the Letter Bible or, you know, Strong's Concordance or something else, you don't know which one it is until you look it up. Uh, in the same way, there's four places that are sometimes called hell. And they're not the same place. They don't serve the same function. We talk about hell being eternal. Which one is it? Do you remember the old TV show, To Tell the Truth? Will the real eternal hell please stand up? You know, and <laughs> So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And, and it's actually, you know, each hell is a little bit different. And that's why I was, this, this came up with a soul. Um, basically, we're going to be looking at what happens when a person dies. I've been asked this uh, different times. Most of the time it's by somebody who has recently lost somebody they really care about. And they go, well, what happens when you die? What's it like? And so uh, we're going to cover that. You may already know this, but I hope that I can bring some clarification by, by looking at Greek words and the Hebrew word and, and trying to pin things down and get, get, the, uh, get our arms wrapped around it. So some of it we're going to hurry through. And the first thing we want to... Um, well, before I go there, I do want to, you all probably remember the story of Jesus as he, after he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, then he was on trial by different people. They were trying to trip him up, trap him, you know, by ask, asking him different questions. And uh, the Herodians were up. It was their turn. And they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, let me see one of the coins. So they brought him a coin, and he said, whose picture is this? Whose inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. He said, well, if it's Caesar's, give it to him. Give to God what is his. Now, I don't know if you, maybe you've thought about this, but 
what Jesus was saying, whose image do you bear? We were made in the image of God. If we're supposed to give the coin to Caesar, give to God the things that are God, what do we give? We give ourselves because we've been made in the image of God. We bear his image just as the coin bore Caesar's image. Make sense? And this whole thing about being made in the image of God, I just want to take a I want to run through some of these real quick just as background to talk about hell. Doesn't that sound like fun? We're going to talk about hell tonight. <laughs> Everybody's excited, I'm sure. Um, but I want to start with 1 Thessalonians 5.23. We'll probably, if you want to turn your Bible somewhere, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. Everything else we're going to try to have up here on the screen because there's a whole lot of passages and, and I don't want you to miss something because you're trying to flip back and forth and It'll save us some time. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in the Bible it talks about our spirit, or it talks about our soul, or it even talks about our body, uh, and that usually separated. But in this one verse, Paul brings out that we actually have all three. That is one of the ways, there are a number of ways, this isn't the only way, but there are a number of ways that we are made in the image of God. God is triune, and in the same way, he made each one of us to be a small picture of him, little trinities, as it were. And so we have three separate parts, the body, soul, and spirit. Um, We're going to look at these, but we're going to use a broad brush because we're not going to take a lot of time um, in in any, any one of these. The body, let's start with that one because that's the easiest to understand. It's the part we see, it's the structure, it's the house or tent, it's even called that in the scriptures. When Adam and Eve sinned, their bodies began the dying process. Uh, We're all familiar with physical death. We've all lost loved ones at some point or another. If you look at the newspaper, you can read the obituaries every day if you want to uh, and see that, yes, we are mortal. And there was a state, I can't remember, it was up in the northeast somewhere, I don't know if it was Maine or... Anyway, they, they had an article that said uh, the death, the death um, rate is down to 2% or something like that. Well, no, <laughs> it may have been 2% of the population that died, but the death rate is never 2%. The death rate is always 100%. So we're all familiar with physical death, and as we'll see later, the body will be raised for eternal existence in one place or another, either in heaven with eternal life or in hell with eternal death. So... That's that's really easy. You see me standing up here and, and I'm looking at you, but what you what you don't see is that my soul, my spirit are on the inside and they're standing on their tippy toes peeking out my eyeballs at you, see? And you're have the same looking at me. Let's go on to the soul. This is sometimes called the heart of man. The soul is the part that will uh, has the will to choose and emotion. This is the real you. In Hebrew it's nefesh and in Greek is psuche, and it means, it's sometimes translated life, mind, heart. It's a deep part of us. Uh, a number of verses just in reference to the soul. Isaiah 26, 9, with my soul I have desired you in the night. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul so pants my soul for you. Psalm 103.1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all is within me, bless his holy name. So the soul is a very, very deep part of our being and a part of a deep-seated emotion and, and the will and the making decisions, that type of thing. We see in Genesis 35.18, 
the death of Rachel that I mentioned earlier. And it was, and so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Son of My Sorrow. But his father called him Son of My Right Hand. And here, early in the scriptures, in the book of Genesis, God gives us some insight into death with this unique statement, as her soul was departing. Now, Ezekiel 18, it tells us that God has said the soul that sins will die. Um, but the death of the soul is not the same as the death of the body. But the death of the soul takes place in the fire of hell. And we're going to talk more about that later. But for now, the soul has life and is separate from the body. Jesus brings this distinction a little bit. Um, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And we'll come back and look at what, which one is he talking about. We'll look at that later. When the body dies, the soul departs, as we saw in Genesis thirty-five eighteen. The soul is conscious after death. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, when he opens the fifth seal... Uh, John said, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. And they cried out in a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to them. So we see the souls of the martyred believers in the presence of God under the altar. Whatever that means exactly, I don't know. But they're conscious, they're speaking, they're wearing white robes. And... Then the, sec- the last part is the spirit. But even in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it talks about the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any t- two-edged sword. It penetrates the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, the discern of the thought and tense of the hearts. Um, everything is laid open and bare before him with whom we have to do. But it's, it's a divider of the soul and spirit. So those are also different things. Moving on to spirit then. In Hebrew, it's ruach. And in Greek, it's pneuma. And this is the part of us that relates to God. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Galatians 8, uh, I'm sorry, 6, 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And we know that the spirit departs a body when the physical body dies. <clears throat> In Matthew 27, 50, Jesus yielded up his spirit when he died. In James 2, verse 26, uh, he says that a body without the spirit is dead. And in Acts 7, 59, as they were killing Stephen for his testimony, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, before we can talk a lot about what happens at death, we need to find another term. And I've already mentioned this, the word for hell. There's at least four words that are sometimes translated hell, and so our English translations don't always help us to understand what's being talked about. One is in the Old Testament, but three are in the New Testament. And one of the hells is forever, but which one? Since we're looking at the words for hell, um, we'll be talking what happens uh, when somebody is not born again, when somebody is not saved, that they are not walking in the Spirit, if they don't show the fruits of the Spirit in their lives. So everything's going to sound kind of negative. Uh, Jesus talked about hell a lot. It's real. Uh, You think of everything he went through, suffering, dying for us. It should tell us that hell is really, really bad and should be avoided at all costs. At least God was willing to lay down all costs to keep us from going there, uh, to provide a way so we don't have to go there. 
Let's start with the first word that is easy just because it's infrequent. And that's from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Then we're going to skip down to 9 because it lists a bunch of other things. If he knows how to keep these demons in, in hell, in chains to darkness, reserved for judgment, then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. The word there in uh, 2 Peter 2.4 uh, 2, is Tartarus, and this is the only place this shows up in the Scripture. Now, it's certainly insinuated uh, in Jude 6. Well, be chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Jude, so just Jude 6, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So Tartarus isn't mentioned by name, but it certainly sounds like the same place that Peter was talking about, and he does mention it by name. Uh, most all translations render it as hell. Uh, some will render it with a footnote saying that it's Tartarus, um, but it's not the same place as the other words that are rendered hell. There's no indication that people ever go here. It's a place for for fallen angels, for demons. Um, they're the only ones that go to this particular hell. And since they're being reserved for judgment, it is likely that they will go into the lake of fire later, which we'll get to that one later. It is possible that this might have been also insinuated when Jesus was casting out some demons. And they say, what do we have to do with you? What are you did you come here to, to uh, torment us before the time? It could be that they were actually making reference to Tartarus as well, that this is the place that demons are going to in advance um, of, um, of the final judgment. <clears throat> Then the next word we'll look at is from the Old Testament, Sheol, um, sometimes translated hell. We'll have a slide with, uh, yes, with the, several different translations. And in this, I'm not trying to exalt a translation. I'm not trying to put down a translation. The only thing that I would say is it's good when you read through the Bible year after year after year to not always read the same translation. Read different translations because, or when you're stuttering, studying through a, a passage, if you have different translations, you can get a better feel. If you don't know Greek and you don't know Hebrew, you can get a better feel for what the original languages were saying because you're seeing it said different ways. And you can see that some places, like there's a couple of versions, and they translate it Sheol every time. Um, one time after a service, the elder came up to the pastor, not here, and said, um, I had a woman come forward after the service, and she wanted to know about the Old Testament hell. And the pastor said, Sheol? He said, oh no, she's only about 50. <laughs> well, that went over better than I thought. It, I was afraid it might. <laughs> Sheol is mentioned 65 times in 63 verses, so that means there's two verses where it's mentioned twice. And like I say, some versions always render it Sheol, and some never do. Uh, and so that's where some of the confusion can come. My personal opinion is that Sheol should always be rendered as Sheol with a capital S because it's a place. 
Uh, I don't think it should be translated as grave. And I'll, well, why? Well, thank you. I'm glad you asked. I'll be glad to tell you. I don't think it should be translated as grave because the word for grave is different, cover. And graves are different uh, in a lot of ways. People can see a grave. You can touch a grave and become ceremonially unclean. Uh, You can put someone in a grave. You can take their bones out of the grave. You can touch a grave. You can uh, dig or make a grave. Uh, There are graves, plural, and they are for a person. You have Rachel's grave. Rachel has a grave. Now, when it comes to Sheol, Sheol is just the opposite. Nobody sees it. No one puts someone into it. You can't touch it. You can't make it. It is never, ever plural. And it is never belonging to a, an individual. Um, you don't have Rachel's Sheol and somebody else's Sheol. It's, it's, it's all, um, it's just one place. So that's my personal feelings on why I think it should be translated as Sheol, a place, and not uh, as a pit or, or a grave. Um, there is a, also, a lot of times you'll see in the Old Testament that, you know, Abraham died and he was gathered to his people, or was gathered to his fathers, or a lot of other people, kings. When a king died, he was gathered to his fathers or gathered to his people. And uh, you see that a lot, and it kind of implies this existence after death and, and not just a physical burial, but also that they came to this place, Sheol, the land of the dead. So where is Sheol? Well, 29 of the 63 verses that mention Sheol refer to going down to Sheol. And I have just a few of them up here. Numbers 1633, the rebellion of Dathan and Aviram in uh, the days of Moses. Uh, The earth opened up and they went down alive into Sheol. Isaiah 14:15 talks about um, you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. And Ezekiel 31:15-18 refers to going down to Sheol and descending into the pit and to the depths of the earth. And in Amos 2, uh, 9-2, Amos 9:2, it even talks about digging into Sheol. So Sheol is always re- uh, shown to be down or uh, referred to as being down. The next word we want to look at is a Greek word. And if I just say it, Hades, which is the way you'd say it in Greek, you're not going to know what it is. But if I say Hades, now you know what it is. (laughs) That's the way we say it in English. We say Hades. Uh, It's used 11 times in the New Testament. And again, we have a list of the places where it's referred to as Hades. And sometimes uh, some versions never, ever refer to it as Hades. They just refer to it as hell. They translate it as hell. And again, I think we do a disservice by not calling it by its name, and it it can lend to confusion. And I'm hoping that what this teaching does is brings clarity to this whole topic, uh, brings clarity to you. Uh, Jesus pulls back the curtain, the veil for us when it comes to Hades. And if we look at Luke chapter 16, which I had mentioned earlier, we're finally going to get to look at your own Bible. (laughs) I don't have it up on the slide uh, above my head here. So Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. As far as I can tell, this is not a parable. Uh, It doesn't say, and he spoke a parable unto them, saying. And we're also going to find that somebody in this story is mentioned by name. So I don't think this is a parable. There's no name in any of the other parables that Jesus ever told. 
And he doesn't introduce it as a parable. He just says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. So we see here that the New King James uh, does indeed call it Hades here instead of just saying hell. But some do. Some say hell. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and <clears throat> said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment." Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So Jesus pulls back the veil and lets us get a glimpse of Hades in this passage. Not only do I think this is not a parable, I think that when Jesus was talking to the people, they knew who he was talking about. When he mentioned Lazarus, oh yeah, we remember Lazarus. He used to be over there at this guy's house. You know, I think they knew who was he was talking about. I think there's the people he knew. This is just my opinion. Um, but what we do see in here uh, is that, and even if it was a parable, if I get to, you know, before the judgment seat of Christ someday and Jesus says, why did you tell those people it's not a parable? That was a parable. You know, I said, well, Lord, I'm sorry. I uh, but what, actually, if it's a parable, what does it mean? <laughs> it kind of means the same thing, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, so I'm not too terribly worried about that, but I don't think it was a parable. Uh, I'm going to leave that behind now. Uh, the rich man was in Hades. He was conscious. He recognized that he was in torment. I used to run a lot. I ran marathons. I used, I've run a lot of long races. There were times, this is back when we were in Wichita, Kansas, where it was nice and hot and humid. Although not probably not as humid as here, but there were times that Bonnie would have to hose me off after like a 20 mile run or something because I was just so hot. I had it, my, my temperature had to be brought down. I mean, I was, it was just that bad and it felt better. But in all that, I never was at the place if she'd have walked out and dipped her little finger in a cup of water and touched my tongue. I don't think it would have brought me relief. He was, in, he was in such torment that even that would bring some relief. I mean, that is far worse torment than I can understand, uh, comprehend. But he, would, he recognized that he was in torment. He had memory. He could remember the way his life was, the way Lazarus' life was. Uh, he could remember family. He knew that his family were not living according to the Word of God, that they were going to end up in the same place as him unless they changed their way. And so... Uh, this is a, a place of torment that the unsaved go to, and it's 
a waiting place. This is not the final eternal hell. We'll look at that a little bit later also. Now, just to cover another thing here, as we're still talking about Hades, there's a great gulf here between two pieces of it, two sections of Hades. Now, the Bible isn't clear about what Jesus did the three days that his body was in the grave, but his soul was still active. We know his spirit was still uh, busy. One of them, one of the passages, it's a, there's two passages where it kind of hints of what Jesus did. Uh, the one in First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, do mention the fact that he was alive in his spirit and he went to preach to spirits um, in the past from time of the flood. The other one is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. I'll give those to you again because I don't think I have them up here, but Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, based upon these two scriptures, it would appear that Jesus went into Hades, preached, and then took the people who were in the Abraham's bosom side, the paradise side, the godly dead, he took them with him to heaven. So that means instead of having two compartments in Hades, there's only one now, there's only one, and it's the place of torment. All right? Now, what's the third one? The third one is, we pronounce it in English, Gehenna. It's in Greek, it's Gehenna. In Hebrew, it's actually, a, a, it's not even a Greek word that was used by, in other ways, it's actually a Hebrew word that was brought over into Greek, whether they call that transliteration, when you take a word or a name and you just change the letters from Hebrew letters to Greek letters, or we do that all the time in our English versions. We have names that were in Greek letters, and we just bring them over to convert the letters to English letters, and then that's how we get the name. And when we make that double jump, that's why sometimes in the New Testament, the Old Testament names don't come out the same way, is because, especially you notice in the King James, because they just brought them over, uh, but they're, they're, you lose something as you go three languages, uh, just transliterating. Now this, um, in Hebrew, it's gay Hinnom, or sometimes it's gay Ben Hinnom, and that means gay is valley, and Hinnom is a name, and Ben Hinnom would be the son of the same name, the son of Hinnom. Um, this is mentioned 12 times in the scriptures, and it's oftentimes translated as hell as well. It is only used by Jesus except for one time in James chapter 3, verse 6. He also refers to Gehenna. Uh, the rest of the times, all the other 11 times, Jesus refers to Gehenna. And this name originates, in fact, as I think Pastor Tom mentioned this, I don't remember if it was a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, it's only been in the last few weeks, that this was uh, referred to the valley that's just on the south side of Jerusalem. It was a place where they used to offer their babies to Moloch, and then later it was desecrated, and they burned trash there, and the fire was burning there most all the time, and so this became a name or a picture of hell. And so when it refers to Gehenna, it's the Valley of Hinnom. And and that's that's where this name comes from. And it's brought over to Greek, and then we, we say Gehenna in English. But it's referred to, used to refer to a fiery abyss of punishment where both the body and soul... Now, we read the verse in uh, Matthew earlier, and he said that... Uh, Fear him who's able to kill the body and the soul. And now we see that Hades is a place that souls go to, all right? But there's no indication that the body ever goes there. 
But Jesus is talking about a hell where a body and a soul. Can you see, see how this can get muddy if we don't know that it's talking about different places? And so Gehenna is the place where he, he makes reference to both the body and the soul. In fact, out of the 12 times that Gehenna is mentioned in the New Testament, uh, seven of those times it actually refers to body parts as well, the body in some way or another. And so this is a place that the body can also be thrown uh, into for judgment. And that happens, I'm sure you guys know this, at the great white throne, before the great white throne judgment, there is, let's just back up a little bit. The first resurrection in the reign of Messiah is the resurrection of the people who came through the tribulation, died in the tribulation, who were believers. They're resurrected, they reign with Christ for a thousand years. The second resurrection that takes place in the reign of Messiah is the one of the... the uh, unjust and that is right before the great white throne judgment and so everybody is so there's a resurrection now we have bodies and souls back together again and they are being judged by the books what's written in the books and they're checked to see if their name's in the book of life and if it's not in the book of life they're thrown into the lake of fire now the lake of fire and Gehenna seem to be the same thing because we see people going body and soul into the lake of fire. And Jesus talked about them going into Gehenna, body and soul. So they seem to be the same thing, the lake of fire and Gehenna, the same thing. Um, I think I've pretty well covered that. Gehenna, or the lake of fire, this one is the eternal one. Uh, after the thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan is let loose, and he caused trouble again, and eventually he's thrown into the lake of fire. It says this is the same lake of fire that the beast and the false prophet were thrown into at the end of the tribulation, at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ. They're still there. And it says that Satan also will be thrown into the lake of fire. And it says, and they will be tormented day and night forever. This is the eternal fire, the eternal hell. And they're tormented day and night forever. There's a lot of people out there saying, well, you know, it's annihilation. You just, uh, you just burn up and you're gone. No, that's not what the Bible talks about. This day and night forever and ever is not the same thing as being burned up and gone. It's... Um, some people talk about soul sleep. Well, your soul, you just... There's no such thing as your soul or your soul doesn't go anywhere. You just you just lay in the grave. No, the rich man was not just laying in the grave. He was in torment. And so that's the place the soul goes. And then eventually everybody who's in Hades will be resurrected and be thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, since nobody can be saved by their works and the books are open and they'll be judged by their works they and their name will not be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And this is called the second death. So, the lake of fire is the eternal hell, the place Jesus referred to as Gehenna, and it's separated from God and everything good. So, and what happens to the person who has not received Christ when an unsaved person dies? Their soul will go to Hades, will be in torment, but this is not the final eternal hell. It's a preliminary hell. Uh, at the, before the great white throne judgment, they'll be resurrected. They'll stand trial before Christ at the great white throne. Then they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. That's the eternal hell. Now, <clears throat> In Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, Jesus lets us know that there are actually levels in hell. 
And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving stripes will be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him much will be required and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask all the more. And so there are levels of punishment in hell. Um, those who rejected God's offer for eternal life through Jesus Christ will receive the greater punishment. Now, are we having fun? I know this isn't fun. Uh, it's not fun for me. It's not fun for God. God knew that hell's a horrible place, and he sent his son to keep us from going there. Um, it's a place removed from the goodness of God. In him, we have hope, we have peace, we have joy, we have love, we have blessing. And since hell is separation from God, there is no hope, there is no peace, there is no joy, there is no love, there is no blessing. And that is why we should be inspired to share Jesus with others. We don't, I don't care who you hate the most in this world or who you dislike the most. Maybe you don't hate anybody. I don't know that I hate anybody. I have people who aren't my favorites, but I would never... <laughs> <clears throat> is that is that just wordplay? I don't know. I don't hate them, though. I don't wish anything bad on anybody, but I would not wish this on anybody. Well, how do we, what do we do? Well, we need to share our faith with people, right? <clears throat> it's a terrible place. No hope, no peace, no joy, no love, no blessing. <clears throat> God did not make hell for people. Jesus said in Matthew twenty five forty one that everlasting fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. But we can choose to reject Jesus and go there anyway. Then later in Matthew 25, just <clears throat> down a few more verses, he says, These go to everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now here again in Greek, it's kind of the opposite. There's one word that's used both times. And we have two different English words that are using whether it's everlasting punishment or everlasting life, or whether it's eternal punishment or eternal life, the Greek word behind the two are the same thing. If there is eternal life, then there is also eternal punishment. It's the same word that's used <clears throat> in Greek. God sent his son to die for our sins, so we don't have to go to hell. <clears throat> in Second Peter 3.9, he says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want people going there. In the book of Ezekiel, God says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their wicked ways and live. This is the heart of God. He doesn't want people going there. He made a way of escape. We have a Savior who saves us from this. Jesus paid the full price for our sin, so we don't have to share the fate of Satan and his angels. <clears throat> Now, we've looked at what happens if somebody's not saved. What if you are saved? For those who have received Jesus and are children of God at the time of death, we go to be with Jesus. Now, if we try to look back at Lazarus or we look back at the thief on the cross, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, okay? This is before he emptied Abraham's bosom side of Hades, and so that's where they would still go at that point in time. But as I said um, based upon those two passages I mentioned earlier in, in Ephesians and in First uh, Peter, uh, we believe that Jesus took that side out. Um, so what happens when a Christian dies? In Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, it says, For we know that if our earthly house, that's this part, this tent, this thing we see, if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. 
that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight, and we are confident, yes, well rather and, and well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So when a Christian dies, you go, do not pass go, do not collect $200, you go to be with Jesus, okay? And again in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 and 24 through 24, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I live in, on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. Uh, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So to depart and be with Christ is better. To depart and to lay on the ground for 2,000 years, he didn't say that. It, to, you know, he, it's uh, not soul sleep or something, but we go to be with Jesus. Now, so a Christian loved one dies. The Thessalonians were concerned about this, and Paul explained this to them as well. When our Christian loved ones die, or we die, the soul goes to be with Jesus. Well, then what happens? First <clears throat> Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, the rapture passage. Um, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now you get that? God is going to bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The souls of people that we love who have died and gone before us, if the rapture happened right now, those souls come back with Jesus. Their bodies are raised. The bodies and souls are rejoined. Those who are alive, our bodies are changed, transformed, and then we go up together. Okay, well, let's continue reading here. Uh, Let me go back and re-get that. Um, For this we say to you, Oh, no, let's go back even farther. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And therefore, as Paul says in the next verse, we should... Encourage one another, comfort one another with these words. The souls who have gone to be with Jesus come back with them and reunited with their bodies. And then as glorified-bodied believers, we go to be with Jesus with the dead in the clouds. From this point on, we're with the Lord forever. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks more about this. It uh, talks about how we get the glorified bodies and the the nature of the glorified bodies, the heavenly bodies, the spiritual bodies. Um, And in 1 John 3, 2, uh, he says that we will see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. So again, John is making a reference to a change in our bodies, that we will be like Jesus. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 also that this will happen in a moment. The word in Greek there is the word from which we get the word Adam. And the reason why the word the reason why we refer to atoms as atoms is because once upon a time it was thought that that was the smallest unit that anything could be broken down into. Now we know that atoms now, we know now that they can be broken down into smaller units, but once upon a time it was thought that the atom was the smallest. And so they use this word from Greek. And so what does this mean in Greek? It means a, a segment of time that is so small that you can't divide it. 
<laughs> That's a moment. Okay? Now, after the rapture, there will be an event called the judgment seat of Christ, which is described in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. But take note that this doesn't have anything to do with heaven or hell. This is a judgment on what you did with your life, what you did building upon the foundation of Christ, and it has to do about rewards. So this is our hope and our comfort in Christ. We will die and not just sleep until the resurrection. We will go to be with Christ along with the other Christians who have lived for him. However, the unsaved will not sleep, but will be tormented in judgment in Hades and eventually into the lake of fire. What we do here in this life is the deciding factor. And if you haven't opened your door of your heart to receive Jesus, I would certainly encourage you to do that. The decision to receive Jesus or not has consequences that last forever. But those who have been born again by confessing their sins, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that's not enough. We also have to believe in him. God thus loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Or also in John 3.36 where it says, uh, he that believes on the son has everlasting life. He who does not believe on the, get this one, he who does not believe in the son does not have life, but the wrath of God, the Greek word means remains. The wrath of God remains on him. It's not like something that's off in the future. The wrath of God is already there. It's on their head right now unless they turn and believe. So confessing sins, believing in Jesus, but even that's not entirely all. In Acts 17.30, Paul says um, that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Okay? Repentance by itself is also not all we need to do. We also need to receive Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. And in Revelation 3.20, Jesus says he stands at the door and knocks. If anyone hears his voice and opens the door, he will come in. He didn't say, I'll think about it. Or if you open the door, I will come in. And so for everybody who has been saved... The body will be resurrected at the rapture before the great tribulation. And um, Jesus is God's only provision. Jesus, you know, we're talking about hell is not fun, but Jesus talked about hell quite a bit. And when pressed on it, he said, strive to enter in through the narrow gate because narrow is the way that leads to salvation, that leads to heaven, that leads to life. He said, the way that leads to destruction is broad. Many will find it. The way to life is narrow. Few will find it. Again, we want to make sure we direct people to this narrow way. And then after we're saved, salvation is not the goal. Salvation is the beginning. It's the new life. The Bible tells us that we are to be filled with his Holy Spirit. That's good. And that it's God's desire that we'd be conformed to the image of his Son. And that's also good. Therefore, for those of us who have received Jesus and have eternal life, there is one more death we need to talk about, and that's death the self, that we're supposed to take up our cross, which is not the thing we wear around our neck that's nice and gold and smooth. It's, it's like the electric chair. It's like the lethal injection. It's like the hangman's noose. It's an instrument of death. Take up our cross and follow him. We die to self. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So we are to die to ourselves and live for him, take up our cross. We're to take up our cross and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. You have not left us to be ignorant. You have explained things to us in great detail. And and we are thankful for that. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your word that you have revealed how you have made a way for us to avoid this torment and this... this anguish. And we're so thankful for your provision of your son, Jesus, knowing that he is, he's the only provision that you've made. We're so thankful, Lord Jesus, for your coming and for your suffering and for your death and for your resurrection. We would have no hope. There is no hope except for what we have in you. You are our, our, our entire hope, all of our hope, all of our rest is on you and we love you and it'll be our profound privilege to spend all of eternity giving you thanksgiving and giving you praise and to just serve you it's it's a privilege to serve you in this life and it'll be our profound privilege to serve you forever our lord the king you're the boss you're the king we're the servants tell us what to do and help us to do it and we we want to walk in your ways and so we give you thanks for uh, the good hope that you've given us. And if there's someone here who hasn't come to you, we ask that you would draw them to Jesus, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be at work. But help us as believers to rejoice and to be thankful uh, for the promises that you've given us for our future. Uh, very, very blessed by your great kindness, your tender mercies. Thank you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.